and welcome to another edition of Law Technology Now. My name is Dan Rodriguez and I'll be the host for today's show. Delighted to have a conversation here with Jeff Kelly from North Carolina. Before I introduce Jeff, before we get into our show today, I want to take a minute to thank our sponsors. Thanks to our sponsor, Acumas, patent and trademark renewal payments made easy. Find out how Acumas.com can take the stress out of annuities and save you money on European patent validations today. And Logical, thanks to our sponsor, Logical, instant discovery software for modern legal teams. Logical offers perfectly predictable pricing at just $250 per matter per month. Create your free account anytime at Logical.com. That's Logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. Without further ado, I'm delighted to uh, welcome our uh, guest for today, Jeff Kelly. He is a complex litigation attorney and legal data analyst with broad experience in complicated business disputes, risk assessment, and legal project management. Jeff advocates for companies and individuals faced with significant business disputes, most often involving corporate and securities litigation, internal investigations, financial services, fraud, trade secret, and intellectual property protection and unfair trade practices. He has experience serving clients in state, federal, and international courts. I got to know Jeff, given his, uh, his uh, role, important role, as chair of the North Carolina Bar Association's Future of Law Committee, which is charged with tracking and analyzing the impact of emerging technology on the practice of law and delivery of legal services. He serves as a council member for the North Carolina Bar Association's Appellate Practice Section and Antitrust and Complex Business Disputes Section. He's also an advisory member to the North Carolina State Bar's Regulatory Reform Committee. Welcome, Jeff. It, it, it appears from that, uh, that long bio ju- I just read that you have uh, more than 24 hours in the day when the rest of us mere mortals only have 24 hours. It is quite a, a heavy plate <laughs> that, that you have. So let me get into it by actually uh, starting at the beginning, which is your, your, your practice area. Tell us how you got into I've I've used the word complex and significant a number of times in introducing you. So you're working on complex and significant matters. How did you get into, uh, into the legal practice that, uh, that you're in today? Thanks for having me, Dan. And I think the complex is just a, a good way of talking about I deal with things no one else really wants to deal with that it doesn't fit in very well. So it started off pretty easily with you're talking about your standard business disputes, corporates, and really messy matters. But over time, you know, it gives you an opportunity to see some of the common threads between a lot of different subject matters, but you're talking about clients and businesses that while they're not uniform, there are similarities between them. That's where the sort of legal analyst, if you want to call it that, comes into it, where we're, I'd say that I was on early end of adopting some analytics. I do that for a specialized business court that I practice in. And it really helps to, especially as a younger attorney, to figure out where things are going and communicate that to your clients. So I'd say that that would be the main roadmap for what I do. And it's branched out into a lot of different practice areas. And it's gone beyond just litigation at this point, because you can translate the court process to in-house clients or government bodies. And so it's um, kind of how I found myself in a number of different advisory positions, too. Let me ask you about that, what you just said about going beyond litigation. So, you know, the, the, the classic way that, that we communicate to our students and young lawyers is, hey, choose between being a transactional <laughs> lawyer and being a lawyer in litigation, right? But your, your practice seems to blur that distinction in important ways. It seems like you're, you're actively involved in litigation, obviously, on behalf of your clients and all the advice and, and representation that goes along with that. But you're also engaging in, in transactional work, as it were. Is that, am I accurate in, in describing you as blurring those lines? Yeah, I, I think that there is 
definitely a blurring of practice areas and the pillars of transactional and litigation or in you know in-house are not really what they are anymore. I mean, that's something that we work with young associates with um, also law students on trying to break them of that dichotomy. And a lot of our, I mean, Dan, your our mutual friends of ours, Cat Moon and others are working with like the Delta model, for example, where we're trying to find a way of talking about those paradigms and realizing that the fact that I do a lot of litigation gives me a certain perspective that's beneficial for the deal side of things. And that the fact that I actually understand how a business operates, for example, makes me a more effective litigator. This is maybe a luxury of being a boutique litigation firm where I actually have an opportunity from, frankly, day one of my license to work directly with my clients. I'd say that through this pandemic, especially the, the closeness of being able to work with clients actually operating for a lot of you know, small companies, but still big in operation, where I'm effectively their general counsel, stepping in, helping them avoid litigation is uh, invaluable. And that's, uh, I mean, frankly, what I think the, the practice is about, right, is being able to really help folks navigate the system as opposed to kind of shepherding them once they're in it. You referenced the pandemic, so let's come to that directly. Are you finding in the last few months as we continue to to endure this crisis that you're being asked for different kinds of services and, and to do different things by your clients in light of the, the COVID crisis? Absolutely. I think that, I don't know who said it, but decades and weeks. That's how it's been feeling is that every single week since about mid-February or so has been a completely different set of practice. I mean, it all touches on business and international transactions and to the extent that, of course, we're operating fully litigation, but helping people deal with government procurement, understanding what is, you know, PPP system would be and how do you actually get the loan? What, you know, what qualifies, who qualifies, how do you get it? Is there money? Just every single week is a barrage of this is the new thing that businesses are really struggling with because uh, we're trying to keep up with, I mean, an administration that wants to help in some way, but isn't clear how to help and isn't communicating. It's not diffusing to businesses effectively. So in a lot of ways, that's where it, I mean, it's still probably the practice of law, but it, really you're, you're a shepherd here, right? You're, you're the person that has the time and role that gives you access to the folks that will actually diffuse that information as it is coming live or telling you this is coming down the pipeline. It will probably be enacted, but ultimately you're in position that once it is effectively law, you can have your your clients or whomever it is you're working with positioned to take advantage of it. And so that's, you know, an important piece of the puzzle. You used the phrase, I just wrote it down, probably the practice of the law. I want to come back to that phrase, but, <laughs> but uh, I want to push this point about what's different with the pandemic. When, when I became a, a law dean from working as a law professor, one of my senior mentors said, you're going to be uh, exercising and deploying different muscles than, uh, <laughs> than you were when uh, you were a professor. And I sort of using that metaphor, are you using different muscles now, you know, in light of this pandemic? I guess what I'm asking is what kind of uh, new skills or existing skills are you and your colleagues bringing to the table to deal with uh, with these these new kinds of issues that arise because of the pandemic? Yeah, so I, I like the the analogy of the muscles. It's kind of I feel like I'm running down a beach, right? You learn about muscles that you didn't know you had when you're exercising them. Right. And no pain, absolutely. no gain, right? <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I, I think that I came to law school with a little bit of a technical background, but that has become far more important in the, in this day and age. And part of that is. Again, not nothing novel in saying this, but there's a push towards efficiency. There's a 
push towards automation because people, I mean, one, as the law firm that is providing the service, you know, you have an open question about receivables. You have a question about the business side of your practice, but you also have clients that whether or not that be paid, they have the capability to pay. And so that's one bucket, right? There's a need, a very tight focus on efficiency and also looking at, I think that right now, a lot of judges, for example, are having to learn about using Zoom or WebEx or any other form of remote technology. And that has been a interesting uh, thing for me to work through, not only as someone that's practicing before them, but also you know, because my, one of my titles has, quote, future in it, I'm, I'm getting a lot of calls that I'm happy to take where judges and um, now the chief justices in North Carolina, the COVID-19 task force has a special working group on tech and innovation. And so I've called into a few times to help them on recommendations where it's not just me, but ev everyone in this, um, and I know it's beyond legal too, but is uh, dealing with how do we do business when we can't be physically together. And the practice law is particularly susceptible to that because we're not only in person, but paper driven. So we don't even have the option for a lot of times to translate that effectively to kind of a remote practice. I hope we'll have time to come back to the online courts. We have, we have so much to talk about. You have such an interesting practice, but but let me let me come back. You've been an evangelist for the use of data, big data, and maybe not so big data and analytics, which you mentioned, uh, and all of that. Could you talk a little bit how you came to that evangelism? What you saw as the imperative of using data analytics and more analytic approaches in the in the practice of law, which of course you've modeled in your own practice, but I know you've uh, promoted that among lawyers in North Carolina and throughout the United States. I'm always a little bit careful when people say evangelize, because I think that that gives the perception that I'm you know, on, on the corner of a street and shouting out there. I think that the value of uh, data and using data in your practice is really under the hood. It's informing your judgment. And the way that I talk about it when I'm describing it to you know, how I work with my partners, many of whom have virtually no idea except for general trust and experience of working with me that I'm using data to inform my decisions. It's, uh, you know, I refer to that scene in Star Wars, the, the Han Solo effect, where you have them going through an asteroid field and C-3PO tries to tell Han Solo the odds of survival. And he says, never tell me the odds. So that's been my rule is I don't tell people the odds. I look at what actual empirical information I can have. It helps me frame my experience, which I've been practicing for about six years in a pretty concentrated area. So it's enough that I feel like I have some credibility, but uh, you know, my founding partner has 30 years my senior in this. So obviously the depth of his personal experience is far deeper than mine. But at the same time, early on in my career, for example, I, I mined our business court. And so I have a sense of a lot broader, not just what my firm does, but also what everyone else in this space does. And so there's a lot of different ways to look at that data and not just in sort of the spreadsheet sense, but also use that as a roadmap to when I encounter a novel situation, I can look and see, I know, or at least have a tool that lets me look at how other firms have handled that. We're a profession that is built on looking at what other people have done before us and doing it the same or better, hopefully. And so that is, uh, you know, some way for me to, without the actual experience to more or less simulate, it's a, it's a good substitute or supplement to my, you know, I, like you said, I only have 24 hours in the day. And so how do I leverage what I can use to catch up to people that, again, are many years my senior? 
it's about expanding your bandwidth and right in, in some important ways. So you you mentioned law as a fundamentally backward looking profession, right? And and that's doesn't have to be pejorative. We look at the past and the decisions of the right. past. But the paradox, right, is we're also looking forward looking in really important ways. We're making predictions about outcomes. We're urging courts to make certain decisions on our behalf and clients to make certain decisions. Are you finding the use of technology like machine learning and other mechanisms uh, valuable? And if so, how, how are you utilizing that in your, uh, in, in your practice? I mean, as far as direct implementation in practice, I think that a lot of machine learning algorithms are mostly, we're limited more by practical applications. So a lot of that is in e-discovery, obviously through litigation. And uh, I mean, some applications for looking at case assessment, but I'm always careful of overselling that because I know that there's a lot of AI hype, especially in, in other all the practices. bells and whistles, all the bells and whistles, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. robot thing. lawyers, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, as much as I'm enthusiastic about uh, a lot of opportunities and, and dig into that a little bit more, I'm also very careful in kind of prefacing too quickly adopting some tech and, and just especially right now, um, I always push for considering algorithmic bias, for example, right? Where right now, I think that technology is not mature enough. Uh, sorry, I should be specific. Machine learning and especially AI applications are probably not mature enough that we couldn't claw back any ill-conceived application yet, but we are approaching that, I think. Um, maybe not going as far as say the singularity, but the point is that the complexity and opacity of the decisions that were basically uh, courts that are being overwhelmed and frankly more overwhelmed now are looking at tools, uh, you know, especially like Compass or other risk assessment tools to help them make decisions rapidly based on, you know, empirical, whether or not you trust it, empirical systems and uh, not really asking the right questions. I think about, well, that, you know, is the data set biased and therefore is the algorithm biased? And so that's a you know, very cautionary tale that before I get into being overly enthusiastic about what's coming down the pipeline I see, I want to make sure people understand what the risks are too. And I realize that that is me being a kind of a lawyer first and looking at technology as opposed to being the technician or designer of that product. Well, if, I, if you'll permit me to reflect back on what you've said, what you've described in terms of, and, and makes me want to take back the term evangelist to describe it, <laughs> what, you, what you have as an analyst, right, is bringing the skill set that you have as someone very agile and familiar with technology and the kind, these kinds of questions, but at the same time as a lawyer understanding its limits and how, uh, and how, uh, what cautions and guardrails we should have about its use. Let's take a break now. And then when we come back, I want to talk to you about your uh, reform efforts. Trying to cut costs? You're not alone. In today's climate, a five-figure e-discovery bill per month is steep. Don't pay that. Use Logical to reduce expense and control your discovery process. Get started today for only $250 per matter, and they'll waive migration costs from competing platforms. For more information, visit logical.com slash LTN. That's logic with a K, C-U-L-L dot com forward slash L-T-N. Increase productivity and profitability through Acumas.com. Acumas provides cost-effective and reliable annuities management while keeping customer satisfaction at the helm of the action. With 40 years of excellence in the field of IP renewals, Acumas understands how quickly annuities can become burdensome for clients who would prefer their focus elsewhere. Contact info at Acumas.com or visit Acumas.com to discover how you can benefit from a management solution tailored to your needs. 
So welcome back to our show. I'm Dan Rodriguez, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Jeff Kelly, lawyer from North Carolina, prominent advocate of regulatory reform, among other subjects. So Jeff, uh, in all your spare time, and uh, and <laughs> listeners should know that I'm smiling when I'm when I'm saying that. Of course, you're working uh, as chair of this uh, law reform uh, commission in North Carolina. I may have the title wrong, but that's basically what it's done. Can you talk talk about what that's about and what what you're working on in connection with uh, with this these efforts in North Carolina? Yeah, so there's really two main tracks. One is through the I'll kind of permit me a second to explain this to listeners Please. because I know there's a lot of confusion with bar associations, bars, etc. I have two separate roles. One of them is through the North Carolina Bar Association, which is the Voluntary Trade Association. And that I'm the chair of the Future of Law Committee for that, which, as you said at the top of this, that we're charged with tracking and analyzing technology and helping the practicing bar understand not only how it impacts the practice of law, but also how to implement it successfully. And so, as you might imagine, that, that tends to be on the implement, implementation level is a lot more uh, basic than on the sort of looking down the road and helping people understand what is coming. The other piece of it that has recently happened uh, much on the good work of other folks, especially out West, uh, Utah, Arizona, and California in particular, is our state bar, so the regulator, they formed a regulatory change committee, which is initially charged with studying what is happening nationally and hopefully making a recommendation. Although I will say we met about a month ago, and there, there's definitely a sense that the original charge, because it was conceived of before the pandemic hit, you know, may not be responsive enough. And I, I was very encouraged by a lot of the conversations that include what I wouldn't consider a standard question is, who is not in the room right now, but needs to be here? And I think that that is one of maybe the sentiments or regrets that I've heard from a number of our mutual friends who have served on these other states' commissions is that most of the people in the room are lawyers and lawyers of a particular persuasion. And so if we want to look at this as a truly consumer-oriented initiative, which I would hope it would be and what is stated to be, then we should probably have something more than someone that represents the consumers, right? To make sure that what we're working on and assessing and, and hopefully designing is actually responsive to the needs instead of being a solution in search of a problem. I agree with all that, but let me offer a devil's advocate position, as as we say in the law biz. And I've heard this in connection with uh, some of the task forces and efforts that you've mentioned in Utah, Arizona, and elsewhere. So one of the one of the things you hear is, look, the reason we have lawyers at the center of this and, and really almost permeating it, lawyers and judges, is because it takes lawyers and judges to really understand the particulars of the regulatory uh, uh, processes what the rules and regulations are. And so, yes, we're looking after the interests of consumers, but it's lawyers looking after the interests of consumers and they should be at the fulcrum of these of these, of these efforts. What do you say to that? Well, I'd, I'd start by saying that if lawyers are truly looking after the best interest of the consumers, then why is it that, you know, 70 plus, depending on what report you're looking at, don't actually get access to legal services that they need? I mean, at least in the civil context. And that is something that is, more and more difficult. Um, I, in previous conversations, you and I have discussed, you don't really look at me with a business and corporate background saying, okay, well, why is this person leading reform? Why is this person fired up right. about consumer rights? And I think- right. that, You usually find folks in legal aid or in, in, other, in other places leading these reform efforts rather than a, a, a seasoned business lawyer like yourself. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll thank you for saying seasoned, but the, you know, the, 
really, we even if we have duties to our clients, we still are a profession. I'd like to think that we live up to professional values. And so there is right now a tendency to look at in terms of interest that, yes, they focus on your specific clients. Sometimes that is unfortunately tied to more of a loyalty to firms. So where does that leave the public? And so I'd say that there are a lot of well-intentioned people, but the structure of a lot of the practice of law and how many people interact with their law firms, it doesn't really allow them to uh, have a deeper empathy, I think, for a lot of the consumers, just because, I mean, again, for me too, I'm very far removed from a lot of the eviction proceedings, except for pro bono work and from working with not just legal aid, but the actual tenants who are being evicted, for example. All right. So let me, I don't know whether this devil's advocate or not. I won't try to characterize my own question, but do you worry that the more uh, representation, let's call it that of consumers and consumer voices, seats at the table for just the reasons you, you described, will create a risk of pushback? We're seeing that, frankly, play out in California to some extent, right? There's a task force there that actually intentionally did mm-hmm. uh, have a number of so-called non-lawyer representation, consumer representation, recommended a series of, of fairly far-reaching steps and had their hat handed to them, <laughs> if I can describe it that way, by a bunch of uh, by, by lawyers. So where's the balance with consumer getting consumer interests, but also not risking that this becomes whatever the reforms that your your committee proposes becomes dead on arrival. Yeah. And I think that, you know, talking about ATILS, California specifically, I think that some of that had to do with lawyers are best positioned to know that these changes are coming, know that these comment periods are open and are inclined to, especially from an economic interest, voice those opinions, whereas most consumers, most self-represented litigants have a hard time even getting through the court system that is coming after them, right? So how are they going to know about this sort of backroom committee conversation that only reason it gets spread out to the public is through lawyer networks, which of course are going to have a certain perspective. I mean, both good and bad is going to have a certain perspective. So the responsibility is on us, not just regulatory reform committees, but as a bar to engage the public. And I will say that I mean, I'm, I'm encouraged by some of the response anyway to, uh, to the pandemic and a lot of the racial tension that was caused by, at least sparked by the murder of George Floyd. But our chief justice has formed a few task force, which again, we'll see where they lead, but at least in principle and you know, spirit of them, you're looking at committees like a, it's based on the Tennessee model, I believe, but basically faith and justice committee, where the goal is to work with centers of faith. So churches and other groups to help those groups deliver legal services or, I mean, legal information, you know, some way of using existing networks that most consumers would think to come to when they have a problem. That type of thinking, I don't know where it it leads us in practice, but I'm encouraged that those conversations are having and that we're looking at groups besides JDs to be a solution to what are explicitly legal problems. So this may be an unfair question because I know you, you and your colleagues are still fairly early on, not at the very beginning by any means, but early on in this. But if you look down the road and, and uh, make a prediction about what the end of the story will be, at least in North Carolina, do you see the destabilization of the unauthorized practice of law regime? Do you really see the opening of, uh, to legal practice of, of non-lawyers? What, what, do you, what do you expect to see on the other end, not just of the pandemic, but on the other end of, of this of this iterative process that you and your colleagues are working through? I mean, I think like most jurisdictions, it, we steadily arc towards 
change and reform. I struggle with how to characterize that because it seems like every week we have a pendulum swinging back and forth. Where the North Carolina is the state that is best known for the legal Zoom lawsuit against the North Carolina State Bar. One of my I was going to mention friends, that, but I'm glad you mentioned that. So, well, so you know, one of my closest friends was uh, is a UPL prosecutor who was a named defendant. So uh, you know, that is one piece of it. And then you swing back where yes, we we've been ahead of the curve, I think, on some of the marketing deregulation, for lack of better terms. But then we swing back again where our state bar, our, our bar exam is at least not progressive. I think that's a safe way of putting it. So it's it's hard for me to peg exactly, except to say that I think that there is a you know not insubstantial group of uh, like-minded folks who are approaching the problem in good faith. I think that when you have that as at least the initial discussion point, there is a good probability that practical things will take place to increase access to legal services. And some of that, by the way, is creative conversations about how not just, uh, you know, if you put the rules in one bucket, right, that's one way that we can affect change, but also how can we encourage the implementation of technology or other, or not technology at all, just using existing rules, but different ways of delivering them to avoid some of the problems or circumvent the rules or allow the spirit of the rules to live on through additional practices. And just so I don't sound like I'm kind of spouting off random thoughts, uh, you know, a good example of that would be using analytics to much in the way that your high dollar firms can for, look at forums and target and look at judges or outcomes. You can also use that same data set to look at where are the pro se litigants? Where do they run into the most problems? Can we actually use data analytics to assist legal aid organizations in delivering legal information to people that while they might not be able to represent them for the entirety of, of a dispute, they can give them critical information at important points in time. And that is entirely permissible, a direct solicitation rule under most states, including North Carolina's rules of professional conduct, where we're not doing it for a commercial purpose, we are using this to diffuse information. And it is, I think, in everyone's best interest that you have parties that understand what they're doing and are able to submit their best case to the court in a form that the court is used to receiving it in. I'm not wedded to any one particular reform or even that reform needs to be the explicit answer so much as we, we need a, a culture change overall. To, I think that's really the bigger problem here. As I listen to you, Jeff, as I've talked to you in the past, there's a theme that runs throughout your zeal and your and your advocacy for regulatory reform in a variety of ways, and that's data and evidence-based decision-making. And we know from some of the exper- experiments underway in states that you've uh, referenced, Utah, Arizona, and the like, there's an emphasis in these so-called regulatory sandboxes, as they call them, for trying experimenting and yep. uh, in analyzing how they're done. And by no means being critical, let me just say that we're still at a fairly preliminary stage of figuring out how to do those experiments and how to analyze that. So I really appreciate that you're focusing on the implementation piece and not just the, well, we're going we're gonna to implement these reforms and deregulate in some sense and then just see what happens. You know, it's, it's funny because, yes, I, I mean, I'm in, I'm in favor of a sandbox, but I think it was Jim Salmon who'd recently referred to it as maybe don't use the word sandbox, but call it consumer tested tools or something along those lines. Because for me, with some technical background, some R&D background, yes, the idea of a sandbox or, you know, in uh, agriculture, it's a fallow field. These ideas that there is a zone where we go into it with good faith and understand that we're doing an experiment here. It's an educated experiment, 
but it could still cause harm to if it's not correctly isolated. That idea is not foreign, and we do it in a literal sense out in the open for other industries. So why not do that in legal where, again, within reason and and being careful about it, I don't see why we presume harm exists is maybe another point I make on that. Right. Uh, I I was hoping we would get back to online courts and I'll I'll just come back to it to say we're going through a natural experiment now. Right. And it's, it's playing out throughout the country to a greater or lesser degree, which is as courts have had to go remote. Now, that's expected to be temporary, although we'll see. But we will see uh, we will certainly be able to analyze, of course, what has been the quality and the measure of justice in this uncertain period of time in which courts have, have gone online. We're winding down on time, but you you mentioned the bar exam, and we don't know exactly when this recording will come out, but it'll be fairly soon. But when uh, from where we are now recording, there is quite a lot of ferment and activity in all of the state bars, driven largely by student concerns that there needs to be some adjustments. I'm talking focusing here on the graduates of the class of 2020 in our law schools with the bar exam. Some uh, states have decided uh, we'll go full speed ahead with the bar exam as scheduled and enforce some some uh, protocols of social distancing, mask wearing, and the like. Others have postponed their bars. Some have looked to online modalities. And even some states, uh, it seems like a steadily growing number of states, have implemented a so-called diploma privilege, right? Kind of a, uh, I wouldn't call it a get-out-of-jail-free card. That's not exactly the right metaphor. But let's right. just say an exception from having to take the uh, the bar exam. Where do things stand in, in North Carolina? Where are some of the some of the issues? Now, that's a leading question because, in fact, there's a lot of ferment in North Carolina, as you know. Can you talk a little <laughs> bit about that? Yeah, so where things stand officially in North Carolina as we sit here at you know noon Eastern on July 1st is right. that we are proceeding ahead full force for the end of the month. So July 28 and 29 in with person. With bar exam as scheduled. With yeah. the bar exam, yes. And with a alternate date in September, if the for some reason they determine, and I think they can cancel up to two days in advance, but don't quote me on that exactly. And According to the most recent FAQ that was released by the Board of Law Examiners, masks won't be required, but I do think they are permitted, which I, I would hope they would be. Yeah, and, that does seem um, like a big concession. From what I understand, that might change because uh, our Chief Justice gave an interview and was asked that question by an audience member uh, about the masks, and she seemed to believe that this idea that masks are not required may not be accurate. So I don't know if that's going to change in the you know as we're talking right now, but point is still in person. Masks are not a on-paper guaranteed requirement, and there are a number of, of especially students who have, have stepped forward to make sure that their voice are being heard, and many of whom are asking for accommodations from the board, not just uh, because of not just because of concern for sort of the general idea that we're being asked to take an exam in a pandemic, but they actually have very legitimate concerns, autoimmune compromise and or or they're concerned about their families right so it runs the gamut from truly medical to situational i understand that some of them have been getting feedback in recent weeks i can't say that those came before there was some public pressure or some public scrutiny and i'm worried frankly that we are just staying the course because we already said on there you know i I applaud states like texas for example where the deans of every single law school, or at least I think every law school there, yeah, have everyone. Present, presented a unified front saying we California support and too. back our students. Yep. And yeah, and you have states that have diploma privilege, for example, or some recognition that we shouldn't require our students to assume all of the risk in this situation, right? Just like I had the good fortune of graduating in you know, 2013 into a good economy, 
that's not by my design. I mean, sure, I, I planned to go to law school in a time that seemed like it was heading in a good direction, but I, I couldn't tell you what I was going to be graduating into, and neither could these graduates. And so they have certain expectations, not just in terms of the professional values, but economic values that we're saying, well, you know, we understand that you had those expectations, but while you're, you, most of you are saddled with debt, most of you are having to pay someone else you can study for this exam and therefore can't work, we're going to make you sit for this or assume you're going to sit for this. And then if we have to change it, then we will. You know, North Carolina is one of the states that required waivers of their students. And I imagine that there are a number of others that we've gotten some justifiably negative press for. And so I don't know, I, I'm, I'm kind of scratching my head on that because this seems like an easy thing to address. Maybe not, I don't want to downplay the complexities of planning something like this, but the one thing that I did hear our Chief Justice kind of weigh in on that disappointed me a little bit, although I, I don't think she was given time to unpack it, is we are prioritizing the, quote, integrity of this test over our students. And so I, I understand wanting to have security. I want to understand, or I mean, you know, I'm completely on board with, if we are doing this in person, then we need to make sure that it's legitimate, that there are, you know, we know that there is no cheating, et cetera. But that's a priority system where you're saying this test and way of doing things is going to take priority over the very clear emergency. And I've seen us as a state, North Carolina has allowed, uh, for example, when hurricanes hit us, I think it was either Florence, yeah, I think it was Florence hit us, our chief justice amended the rules to basically waive UPL restrictions on other attorneys, for example, coming in and helping with pro bono. And so, so it's a big deal in Florida. Some of that happened and, and, uh, and in New York. Yeah, there were some really interesting develops in that regard. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm not saying that there, there even needs to be one solution, right? If I know that there are a number of graduates who absolutely expect to sit at the end of the month and take the bar and that their financial well-being depends on them taking and passing that bar. I don't want this to sound like I'm someone that is just saying, cancel the bar and that's it. This is this is something that needs to be, right now we're giving it a one size fits all approach. And I think that there are ways to, that have been suggested by the way, I think that the ABA, for example, I think back in April, provided a number of, I think, very credible and well-supported and researched proposals that should be playing into this calculus that, and maybe they are. A number of states, a number of states have, have, have looked at, I, I, I just, I mean, we certainly are in the limited time to be able to get to the bottom of it, but just if I can reflect back, number one is these are complex issues. There's a range of, of, of opinions, differences of opinions about what exactly should happen. But if I may, your advocacy and, and also advocacy by, by a number of your colleagues in North Carolina on behalf of the students, which is to say on behalf of looking at this from a student centered approach given the enormity of the uh, of the of the pandemic and other issues that students are dealing with is enormously appreciated i know at the very least one hopes gets new data and new information to the attention of the courts and the bar examiners to enable them to hopefully to do the right thing so 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 we'll see maybe by the time this recording comes out shortly there'll be some uh, some forward uh, forward movement in that regard certainly hope so so thanks, Jeff. Uh, many topics we covered, many topics we could have covered, which is evidence to me of a, of a really interesting uh, guest. And so I'm uh, delighted to be able to, to chat with you about this. And, and I just want to say, keep up the great work that you're doing in, uh, in North Carolina. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate you having me. Well, we've reached the end of our time for this episode. I want to thank Jeff Kelly for joining us today. And lastly, I want to thank our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, 
please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dan Rodriguez signing off for Law Technology Now. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.